0: You're listening to In Focus by Market Scale, a podcast by video professionals for video professionals, putting in focus the topics, teachers, and tips guiding today's video industry.
1: With your host, Market Scale's Senior Director of Video Production, Josh Brummett. Hey everyone, welcome to the In Focus podcast, where we talk about anything and everything in the video and media production industry. Today, I have with me a very special guest. Steve Palaya, our senior creative lead at Scale. Steve might be one of the most well-rounded guys I've ever met. He can do everything from video to 3D animation, VR, and AR. I mean, really, this guy can do it all. So uh, everybody, welcome Steve.
2: Hey, Josh, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here talking about uh, some cool stuff.
1: Awesome, so uh, you've been doing this, this stuff in the industry for quite a while. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, you know, I, I started at very small companies, you know, scrappy startup types that didn't have you know regular accounts and basically anyone who walked in the door with a pile of cash and wanted something you know even if we didn't know exactly how we were going to execute it we never done it before we were like yes we can do that and we figured it out on the fly so because of that you know I, I've had to learn a lot of different skills so I don't know traditionally you know uh, education wise my backgrounds in 3d animation but I really think um, it, you really have to know all your stuff to be a 3D artist. You have to know a lot of stuff about filmmaking. Um, you have to know stuff about special effects. Um, you know, everything that applies in other professions in the industry, you have to know about. Um, cameras, for example, are all, you know, You know properties work the same in 3D. So, you know, early on, despite the fact that I was only a 3D guy, I knew about the, this other stuff with the video. And as we got more jobs in that required me to be on set and maybe direct or to edit or to do other things live action, I was able to pick it up no problem, you know. And just because of that, it makes me very well rounded today and happy to bring those those skills to market scale.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So I also saw some photos where you've done some welding and like woodwork and all kinds of different kind of, you know, machine type stuff. Tell me about that.
2: Well, you know, uh, just that's, uh, from being in a family of engineers. Uh, my mother is an art, uh, art teacher. My father was an engineer. My two brothers are engineers. And so despite me going into the art field, I still have a lot of that engineering DNA in me. And so there was always projects happening, going on. And uh, I've had a lot of old cars in my day, so classic cars that I've, I've fixed up and and done work on and you know if you've ever had a classic car they're always always all rusted out so you know starting from the basics teaching myself how to weld cutting off panels doing stuff so you know and that's really served me well in this industry especially in in the 3d side of things is that um you know every day we're problem solving we are engineering solutions on how to make something work and um you know, it comes right back down to basic mechanics, figuring out what's wrong, how to make it work.
1: Yeah. So speaking on like engineering, you know, I, I think what's really been awesome is is just the whole engineering aspect of things in the video production industry. I mean, things have really evolved quite a bit. And I've, I've always said that I really, really admire some of the engineers in the camera departments like in Sony and Blackmagic and whatnot. They're always really pushing the bounds of, uh, of what the cameras can do. And I think it takes a lot of engineering, kind of that brain to do that. So understanding the technology and how things work and how uh you know color science and, and bit depth and all that works is really important to be able to keep in- innovating in that industry. Uh so that kind of brings us to our next conversation. Um so Sony finally released the long awaited A7S Mark three. Uh it's been five years since the A7S II was released. Uh, which is a very long time to wait for a predecessor of a camera, especially because we have things like the a7R 4 that are already out for a while. Um, but the a7S III, uh, it has some pretty awesome specs. But what's really interesting is the a7S III compared to the brand new Canon R5, which just recently got released this month as well. So I'm kind of excited to talk about these two cameras, these two specs. And then, Steve, I also want you to talk about the a uh, the you know, kind of the engineering aspect of things, the, the science behind these cameras and the fact that they're both finally able to do 10 bit recording and 10 bit is something that, you know, higher end cameras can do. Higher-end cameras can also even do raw, which the Canon R5 can do raw, but having that extra bit depth and what that means to the filmmakers workflow, what that means to the prosumer market. So we'll go in depth on that here in a little bit, but first, let's go over some of the specs of these two cameras. Um, So the uh, a7 III, you know, we have 10-bit 4K video recording, and we have that up to 120 FPS, which is pretty awesome. Um, But looking over at the Canon R5, it can also do 8K at RAW, and it can do the 8K at up to 30p, but it also has the 10-bit 4K of up to 120 FPS. So back to back, the Canon shows up with 8K RAW, which is pretty insane, uh, but you know, I've also, you know, if we're going to do a real big pro compare and contrast, you know, the a 7s III three has a longer battery life. I think almost double the Canon. Um, it also, the Canon has been reporting some heating issues doing 8k, which I mean, if you're gonna be doing 8k raw with an SD card, you know, I can't imagine that being <laughs> not producing a lot of heat. So that's kind of, uh, you know, probably something that I, I could see totally happening. Um, but you know, Panasonic did this last year with 10-bit for the first time in DSLR format, but a lot of people really just you know don't want to go that Micro Four Thirds route and whatnot. So having this open on the Canon and Sony route has been awesome. So, Steve, what what kind of opened up the door for us to finally have the uh, 10-bit? You know, was it was it the the whole technology improving in, in media cards that helped do this? You know, what what are, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, you know, there's lots of different things going on here. So exactly right with the with the media cards having um, these excessive i mean maybe not excessive but intense frame rates you're pushing a lot of images per second and so flash card technology um, used to be limited and so as things have improved you're able to push uh, more images faster and at higher quality and so you know that is a huge leap and then also um formatting the the codec used to encode the the video is also super important and that's something is uh, h265 which i believe is the what's new on the a7 um, is that it's got the new format which is huge you can basically um, have the same kind same type of information at a lot less uh, file size
1: yeah that's awesome i mean i i think you, you see sd card technology changing you know every every six months it seems i mean sandisk is like minimum on their on their pro series is now like 170 megabits compared to like 95 for years is what it was. And now we yeah, now we have you know SD card, I think what is it? Speed 2 where there's an extra chipset in there and you're able to record even raw and higher format. So yeah, I think media catching up to what cameras can do has allowed us to be able to kind of keep building in the capabilities of cameras, especially small format cameras using SD cards. So that's something really cool to kind of see. Um, one thing I want to talk about is uh you know, between these cameras is just a little bit of differences. So the, the, the Canon has uh, smaller pixels on its, um, on its sensor, which gives it uh, the ability to still take really high resolution photos. You can still do 40 megapixel photos, whereas the Sony has larger pixels, which allows it only gives it a 12 megapixel photo up um, max photo size. But what I'm guessing is because the pixels are larger, that also allows you to get better low light than the Canon, which is something that the flagship Sony a7S III has been really awesome at is you can shoot upwards of 6,400 12K ISO and you're still in, in pretty good bounds. And I'm, I haven't seen a lot of test footage from the Canon R5, but I'm guessing because of the smaller pixels that you're probably going to have some, uh, some less low light capability than the Sony, which is an interesting kind of difference.
2: You know, it's, it'd be interesting to know some more of the specs on that because the 8K the sensor on the Canon, um, it would be physically, is it physically bigger, Josh, or is it the same size physically?
1: Oh, so they're very similar. I think there's just like a half centimeter on on um, size on, on it. So like it's like a little bit longer, a little bit wider, but only by like a half centimeter. So they're very similar. It's just the Sony for each, for each kind of pixel diode, I guess, the receptor on the sensor, it accepts... They're larger. Instead of having multiple ones, there's just a few of them that are bigger. So it's kind of a weird. It's it's a different type of uh, way to go about it for sure.
2: And just some background information for our guests here. Um, basically speaking, the larger the sensor physically is, uh, the, the better low light traditionally. So now since they're about the same size, we're getting into you know you know the actual size of the the pixel sensor, which is which is. Um,
1: yeah, and, and something that I think is really awesome is, you know, is the 10-bit. I mean, that that is a game changer because anybody that shot with with the, uh, you know, Canon DSLRs or or Sony, you know, mirrorless cameras, whenever you're shooting in like log formats, which gives you the max dynamic range, you're basically, and you've tried coloring it. Maybe it's just me, but I've had a lot of issues getting the color to do what I want, especially after shooting on cameras like the Blackmagic RAW and, and ProRes and things like that which are higher 10 bit, even 12 bit, you know, footage, um, I've noticed that it breaks up quite a bit. And so I'm really curious to see how well we can start coloring this footage. Now that we have a little bit more flexibility, but a lot of the audience probably doesn't realize what 10 bit actually means. What does that mean scientifically? And why does that give you a better quality and more flexibility in post? And Steve, I know you're passionate about this, and you know a lot about it. So I'd love for you to kind of give the audience some some rundown between eight bit versus ten bit and what that actually means.
2: Absolutely. And this is one of those things that even a lot of professionals are still kind of foggy on when they when they hear about it. Um, so it's it's not the same as resolution. Let me start there. Everyone's familiar with resolution. You know, um, there's uh, ten eighty, which is you know HD, and then you have four K and then six K. Basically, there are more pixels. Whereas what the bitrate is is um, the the amount of difference amount of colors that that uh, per pixel could be. So let's um, let's go back and let's go back to um, physics class when you were a kid. light white light goes into a prism and then gets split out in the different color spectrum right so, Uh, If light went in you get the whole array of colors like a rainbow. It's very similar with an image that you have on screen. So you would have an RGB image which would be red, green, and blue. And just like that prism, when you add those lights together, if you do it in reverse, they create white light. So when you stack a, a red image and a green image and a blue channel, of a picture together, then all the colors blend together and give you all the different colors in the spectrum. And so it's easy to get caught up and get confused by all this. So when I'm talking about bit uh, bit depth, I'm going to take it and, and speak to you in just in terms of a black and white image. So throw the color away for a moment. So a standard um, piece of footage that you get these days is 8 bits. Well, what exactly is a bit? Let me talk to you then about what one bit is. So, a single bit image would be either uh, a pixel would be black or completely white, and you can think of this kind of like the newspapers uh, back in the day where you know you couldn't you didn't have shades gray; it could either be black or white. And so, you can make an image, but it's it's chunky, it's not very clear. Uh, there's limitations. Um, So, if we go up to two bits, basically, you have black, you have white, and then you have two shades of gray in the middle. And essentially, as you go up the bitrate chart, you are increasing the amount of shades in between black and white. So, just to give you an example, a one-bit image is just black and white. And an 8-bit image, which is kind of like the industry standard now, um, has 256 shades of, of black and white. So traditionally, that is enough for most people to get an image that you can go, oh, okay, that represents it pretty well. And for example, um, there are over 16 million possible colors that you can reproduce uh, in, a, in, a, in a 8-bit color image and that sounds like a whole lot but, but why then are we trying to go then to 10-bit? Well you know life isn't perfect when you're shooting and oftentimes something might have been overexposed or underexposed. You've got dark areas, you've got light areas and you're trying to pull back some of that information um, in post-production and unfortunately a lot of that information gets clipped at the whites and the blacks. So by going to 10-bit, you've got, you know, we go from having 256 different variations of black between white and black with an 8-bit, where in 10-bit, you have um, 1024 shades in between white and black. So when you get to that kind of fine granular colors, um, there are more on the black spec, you know, towards the extreme blacks and the extreme whites. So in post-production, you can pull that information. So something that looks completely white, it may not actually be white. You can pull information out of that and take something that was blown out and make it, uh, you know, pretty again. So 8bit, talking about a color image, 16 million possible colors where in a 10-bit image, you have over a billion possible colors. And that is just absolutely, you know, game-changingly different. But let me just swing this back around to 3D for a moment. You know, when I first started in 3D, I was very spoiled in post-production because we would always render out 32-bit images. And if you want to put that into perspective, that's over 4 trillion colors or, uh, you know, uh, different color, possible colors. So, you know, the future is going to be um, ever-increasing bit depth. But really, as we talked about before, the limitations are memory cards speed and file size. Um, And so, you know, I think as, as time goes on, you're going to be seeing more and more increasing bit depths and the more you can do with that kind of stuff. And you can really thank um, social media, I think, today. Uh, more and more uh, people are creating their own media channels, uh, doing their own content, and they're taking it a step above you know, the cell phones, and they're kind of going into that prosumer category with cameras. And that's kind of where these two cameras fall into place.
1: Yeah, so you know these two cameras, obviously. I mean, the sixteen million versus a billion, I mean, that's a that's a big increase. So, and I think that prosumers are obviously wanting to to be able to have more flexibility to have their things look look almost. You know, that's what's crazy is things are starting to look more and more professional with with less and less cost. I mean, back in the day, if you wanted to give, you know, high quality production that looked that looked professional, you had to have at least a twelve to fifteen thousand dollar rig minimum. And now someone can buy a $3,500 camera, buy a couple of nice lenses, and then they can have something that looks just almost just as good. And that kind of brings me to the point of 4K. Uh, You know, I think a lot of the world is still kind of on 1080p, but I think with, uh, you know, TVs these days, you can't buy a a 1080p TV almost anymore. I mean, they're almost all 4K. So, you know, what I think is really cool is I I personally like doing a lot of slow motion footage and the A7S II only had 60p at uh at 1080p. So if I want to do slow motion footage, I was forced to shoot and in, in 1080. So in the end result, all my videos still had to be a max resolution of 1080 because I, that was my max resolution or my lowest resolution I was shooting on. Now being able to do 120 FPS with these cameras at 4K. I mean, and I know a lot of our cameras, we are already shooting at 4K, but if I'm doing a project with these DSLRs and I need that that small form factor and need that ability to kind of travel and be quick on my feet, I can now have all my Sony projects be at 4K and that is going to be my lowest my lowest resolution for any project now, which is so awesome, you know? And I think having having everything at 4K now is, is a perfect time Is I think in a year or two, 1080 is just going to be completely out. And I think the last kind of frontier of 1080 is probably just monitors at work i mean there's still a lot of your main monitors you're buying are 1080 because 4k monitors require a lot of uh, gpu power but gpus have been going crazy as well so i think uh you know the 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 world of 1080 is pretty close to being being gone
2: absolutely and you can also thank everyone who streams netflix i mean everyone who's uh um gets upset with having to stream something lower quality on their 4K television, you know, they're really driving the spur towards the H.265 re- revolution. And really, it's out there. It's about adoption. And so, you know, it's it's the future. As as we go forward, we're just going to have higher bit rates, higher resolution. Um, it's going to be going to be awesome.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, we have two awesome cameras released. So now let's talk about them. Let's Let's kind of make a little, uh, let's talk about which one we would choose. So, um, obviously they're both very similar, but the Canon has the 8K raw, which is pretty cool. So if you want to shoot 8K and you want that flexibility, you have it. And in my opinion with 8K, I think it's very cool, but it, my, kinda, my new thing is I want to export in 4K. So if I have if it's just a standard, like I'm shooting some cool B-roll and it's a cool shot, I might shoot it in 8K. But honestly, I have no problem shooting mostly in 4K now that I'm not going to need to go more well, a down sampling, unless there's something really far away. And I know I need to use some scale or have that flexibility or need something, you know, with like warp stabilizer. I can't see myself shooting a lot of 8k. I, you know, at this point in time, maybe three or four years, you know, into the future when 8k monitors and TVs are becoming a thing possibly. But um, I kind of like that. They also, my other complaint with the Canon R series is the lenses. So the Canon R series uses its own lenses comp- different than the normal EF mount. So, I, you know, going, I switched to Sony probably four years ago with the a7S II and the a7 III. Uh, and so we bought all Sony glass. I've, I've made a pretty nice collection of Sony glass. So uh, I just can't see myself at this point with the Canon R5 making the investment to buy all new glass again. After having now, I have Canon glass from back in the day. Now I have Sony glass. You know, we've been buying some EF mount lenses for our Blackmagic pockets and Blackmagic Ursas, which are also really great cameras uh, that we shoot most of our higher end production on. But I can't see me going with the Canon route because of the lens issue. If they if they maintain the EF lens, I would definitely buy an R five. I would make that my go to camera. But I can't I can't just you know make the the um, that call after. Just needing to buy lenses again. What are, what are your thoughts versus the cameras?
2: You know, it's it's you invest in glass. You don't invest in the cameras necessarily because they're always going to be coming out with a new one. And so the fact that you already have, we already have all this uh, Sony glass. I mean, that would be a reason to stick with Sony for me. Um, absolutely.
1: So, if you were a, a you know a, a professional and you're you're just getting into the industry, maybe you haven't gotten any any lenses yet or a camera, and you're like, I'm ready to make the move. These are some awesome cameras. I'm ready to become a filmmaker. Which camera would you choose?
2: Um, I am a Canon fanboy. Unfortunately, I would go with a Canon if I was starting from scratch. That's what I would go with.
1: All right, I'm I'm sad to say it, but I would do the same. If I was starting from scratch, I would go with Canon. I mean, something about the Canon's color science is is awesome, and I don't know what it is. I've never been able to make my Sony's just look the same with the skin tones as I was with with the original 5Ds back in the day and like 60s. I think there's something about how they do their color science, how they do their uh, their profiles that just have a look. And um, I I, I, I kind of agree with you. And I also really like their lenses a lot too.
2: I would also, I mean, something that's very, you know, not related to the specs, but just the menu layout and just the men, the menu theory behind behind the layouts is better on a Canon, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, they they do have a very smart user design. I mean, Canons are top notch, and they've been one of the top in the industry for a while. It's really cool to see them finally releasing a camera that competes with Sony. For a long time, they they really didn't, besides their high end market, but it's awesome to see having a, a small form factor you know, mirrorless camera that can compete, which is pretty cool. Well, uh, that's about, that's about it for, uh, for you, Steve. I really appreciate you talking about the science of 10 bit and, uh, I can't wait to kind of see where, where this technology takes off. Um, so thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me anytime.
1: Yeah. So coming up next, we're going to do our first movie film review, uh, session with, uh, Chase Lee from real reviews. So, uh, we're going to be going right into that. So introducing Chase Lee. Hey, how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. So, tell me a little about yourself. How long have you been re- reviewing movies?
0: Yeah, so I, I think I started back in like 2011, 2010 ish. You know, I would kind of do it on and off uh, by myself. And uh, there was one movie in particular, The Place Beyond the Pines in 2013, where I skipped work er- uh, early. You know, I, I left early and I was like, <coughs> I'm sick because uh, I really wanted to miss or see the director in person. So, when I got there, I met this lady. That was like standing in line already and then she said i'm looking for writers and so that's how i got thrown into being a film critic um not on a professional level but you know something i can do as my hobby and uh, be a part of a uh, organization called the north tex north texas film critic association and get invited to all the screenings well most of them but um yeah and then i just uh do it on youtube in video form i also do it in podcast form on the real me and cole a movie podcast feed uh, yeah, I still do it to this day, even with uh, everything kind of going on in the the movie industry.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So, what was pr- one of your favorite film screenings that you went to?
0: Oh man, um, anytime when they bring out a guest uh, and it like completely surprises the audience is the best. So, I think the one of my favorite ones was back in two thousand. What was it? Eighteen when I saw First Man, and I was like, yeah, that was a pretty good uh, movie. Um, you know, I, you know, the credits started rolling, everyone was cheering and clapping and the moderator came out like guys uh i I don't know if you know this but there is a special guest waiting in the back and so he just kind of pops out like it's nothing and it was ryan gosling and i was like that's pretty cool uh you know because gosling is one of the best out there and uh, just seeing him just casually walk on stage and everyone losing their minds it was the best but uh yeah there's a a bunch of um bunch of ones even uh one of the ones that you were in there with me i mean it's just it there's a and electricity, there's an energy when you go to these screenings, you know.
1: So theaters are, are in a, with COVID are in a weird spot. I mean, you can't really go to the theater like you could before, which is a kind of disappointment, especially for film and movie fans. So when was the last time you were in the theater?
0: So the last time I was in the theater was in mid-March. Uh, it was kind of like a one-two punch. Uh, the night before the last day, I saw The Hunt. Um, which was really weird because you could definitely feel it in the room that this was probably not going to happen much longer <laughs> just because uh, that's when COVID started ramping up here. And then the very next day, the very last thing I saw before they shut everything down was uh, Emma, the Jane Austen adaptation, which was nice and light and fluffy and it was pretty to look at. And then when you get home and you realize everything's closed and then <laughs> it's kind of a downer again, but yeah, those were the last two I saw.
1: So what do you think is the future of theaters? I mean, where is this going to go? I mean, what, You know, what's kind of the next step for these theaters?
0: Right. So, you know, theaters rely on big blockbuster movies to kind of bring in the revenue. They don't get all of the ticket sales. That's why the concession stand uh, is jacked up in prices. And so they rely on this stuff. And, you know, the more that movies come out on VOD or, you know, premium video on demand, you know, a lot of studios are going to want to do that because they'll get most of the profit. And they don't have to worry about distribution or everything. And we've been seeing that with like Universal doing that with like Trolls World Tour and you know a bunch of their adult fare. And so I don't know if it's you know going to go back to normal. It might be fifty-fifty now, where you know movies come out in theaters for a couple of weeks and then they go straight to VOD as an option. And that's what Universal just struck a deal with on uh, AMC. So. I honestly don't know. I got We have to kind of wait and see and find out like what happens next year. If like a vaccine comes into the trials, like, you know, are people going to feel more safe to go back? Because even though theaters are open, people might be reluctant to go and risk their life. And so a lot of people might want to just stay at home and purchase uh, movies, even if they are $20, $30 for rental.
1: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the VOD thing. What are your thoughts on on people going this route?
0: Right, so I personally don't have a problem, uh, which is really funny because when you go on Twitter and you see people our age complaining about it, it, it's just really funny to me. I mean, you you can choose to pay for it or not, but it really does benefit you know families and you know people that have a, like a large number in their in their household. You know, it's expensive to go to the movies, so thirty dollar twenty dollar price tag is not that bad. And for me personally, I don't really. I don't mind it that much because I spend that much and even more at the theater anyways. And this is the only way for, you know, studios to recoup their money. People have to understand that a lot of movies rely on investors to invest their movie. And so when you have movies like Tenet and Mulan that cost $200 million plus, you can't just let that sit forever and they have to make their money back or they, they start gaining interest on those loans. So they have to release it, uh, somewhat. And if you have to do it at a higher price point, then so be it. Um, I, I personally don't have a problem with it, but I can understand where someone is strapped for cash. I can empathize with that, but it benefits, you know, families and all that stuff. So there, there's some good and bad to it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I, I personally don't like it. I mean, you can make a day night out of it. You know, you sit down get your popcorn, you get, you get your, your margarita or your glass of wine or something if you want to drink. and and you pay for your movie, and you you watch it, and you, you I think you still get that kind of hype. And I think there's a lot of thing with movie theaters is you want to feel like you belong. You belong in that club where you've seen the movie. You're there when it was released, and um, I think a lot of people like that, and I think there's a lot of tension where you're waiting for something for so long, and it's finally out, like a new, new movie, and you can go and watch it on demand. I don't mind it, and I think if you make, make it something out of it instead of you don't just pay for it, then play on your phone all, you know while it's playing. I think you make something out of it. I think you can enjoy it the same way. So I think it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, and and, and this is also one of those things to where I'm not saying I never want to go back to a theater again. I miss the theater dearly. I, I You know me. I, I go like two or three times a week. Like I love that stuff. So um, it's just one of those things to where I can't stress about it, and I have to kind of just see how it plays out in the future. But for right now where we're at with the VOD stuff, you know, I'm comfortable with it. If it means theaters are going to close in the future, then, you know, I retract my statement. But for right now, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it.
1: So let's move on to our actual review of movies. So I, I know you've watched a couple of movies recently. And uh, so let's tell me about those two movies.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, with all, everything with COVID going on, there are still distributors out there that are looking for reviews that are going straight to VOD now. So I get a lot from IFC and Neon and a bunch of these smaller... Uh, companies because they still are releasing their movies on vod so that's awesome so i watched uh, a few of them this week but the last two i saw are so radically different that um you know i think they'll appeal to everyone uh if that's you know kind of the camp that you're in you know the first one i saw was uh she dies tomorrow uh this one comes from neon and if you guys don't know who neon is they are the distributing company that released parasite which won the best picture oscar this year But uh, She Dies Tomorrow is a very abrasive title. And when you hear the plot, it's about uh, a woman named Amy who thinks she's going to die tomorrow, and it's contagious. And so you're probably thinking like, oh, she's going to be chased around by an entity or like some invisible (laughs) demon or something. It's going to be some cheesy horror film. But what I like about it is that it's so weird and kind of off the wall because it's not about that. It's about the power of words and how people can become paranoid when you hear someone else Uh, talk about you know one of their fears you kind of you know scuff it off and like okay that, that that's not gonna affect me like you're kind of losing it and then you go home and you start to think like what if I'm getting sick what if I'm about to die so it's more about a movie that's the horrors of you know paranoia and how Words can be weaponized towards people and how they can brainwash people, unfortunately. And it's a slow burn film. It's a it's a very colorful film. It's very vibrant, very surreal in some parts. It's definitely weird and unique. But if you're more into like psychological dramas um, with like a hint of horror or thriller, I think this one's up your up your alley. Give it a watch if you want to try something different. And on the flip side, the second one that I saw was called Made in Italy, and so uh, definitely the same style for sure <laughs> but uh, no uh, this one's more of like a romantic comedy this one stars Liam Neeson and uh, his son I think it's Mikel Richardson uh, and this one comes from uh, IFC the independent film channel and this one's about an artist that travels to uh, Italy with his son and they kind of reconnect after they have to band together to sell their childhood home Um, A lot of tender moments between, you know, the the father and the son, a lot of emotional stuff brewing underneath the surface, some comedy here and there, you know, to kind of lighten up the mood. But what is interesting about it is that they are real life father and son. And, you know, they pull a lot from their real life tragedy of losing, um, you know, Natasha Richardson, uh, you know, Mikkel's mother and then, of course, Liam's wife. You know, that was a real thing that happened. So they're kind of pulling from that to get these performances out of these actors. I thought it was kind of a little lackluster for my taste, um, which is I feel bad for saying it just because they went through a real life thing uh, and they're kind of pulling from that. But it's a little uh lighthearted. It's a little bit more. um uh, Someone commented underneath my YouTube review and says kind of like under the Tuscan sun type of uh, vibe. So if you're looking for like a lighter fare and you want to see Liam Neeson do more of a drama and, you know, do a little bit more of a crass comedy, then watch that one. It's, it's different to see him beyond the action genre walls. And um, that one also drops on VOD here, I think tomorrow. So um, yeah, so two completely different movies. So you can kind of get a sense of what I get sent in um, screener form. But uh, those were the last two I watched.
1: Awesome. They sound exciting. So totally two different movies, but if someone had to choose one to watch, which one would you recommend?
0: You know what? Uh, I am a weird person and I like weird off the wall stuff. And I think, um, she dies tomorrow is a little bit more profound than the title and the plot. Give it away for So if you want to watch something that is completely just filled with dread and just kind of makes you think about everything, probably that one, um, that that's more my bag, but I think most people might, like the Liam Neeson one because that one's a little bit more uh, light-hearted. All
1: right, so if you want dread, uh, go watch. She dies tomorrow. <laughs> is that right?
0: I mean, yeah, Basically, if you want to feel just terrible afterwards and you know <laughs> reflect on your life, go ahead.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Chase. Where can people find your uh, your channel?
0: Yeah. So if you guys want to search me on YouTube, it's Real Chase Lee. So R E E L Chase Lee. Uh, my ugly mug is the profile pic. So go go find it. Um, I post everything. Uh, there in video form, but if you're more of a podcast person, you want them in audio form. I do uh, them on the Real Me and Colon A Movie Podcast podcast feed. Uh, I used to do you know longer episodes, weekly episodes, but since the pandemic, we've my co-host and I have been scaling back. But I still put up many reviews of you know movies like She Dies Tomorrow and Made in Italy. Um, there was a few more last week, so you know just watch that, and I, I usually have something up there every week
1: awesome awesome well thank you everybody for joining the first In focus podcast i'm excited to go over these topics with uh with these new sony cameras and canon cameras and also talk about the uh, film industry with theaters and the future of theaters and vod so everybody tune in we'll we'll have a new, new episode two weeks from now um, and we're excited to have you guys then take care